2: Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist at the American Museum of Natural History, where I also serve as the director of the Hayden Planetarium. My co host this week is Eugene Merman. Hello. Eugene, I love having you here. I love
3: being here, Neil.
2: Thank you. Sometimes I go into your place where yes. you have your Eugene Merman Comedy Festival. Exactly. And sometimes you come in studio with us. I do.
3: Sometimes I will travel uptown. <laughs>
2: All right. Good to get you out of your out of your digs down there. Yeah. Uh, you know, this week's show topic is all about salt. I know. So, oh, because you read the notes.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the listeners don't know. Uh, I was informed beforehand. So, yeah, we're talking about salt.
2: That's the, the white stuff that we all take for granted. Uh, yeah. And,
3: <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I don't take it for granted. I think it's amazing. It's changed lives. It was a currency at one point, probably.
2: Yeah, well, we, we're going to get into that. This whole show will orbit the subject of salt. Great. And, of course, it's really cheap now. I remember when I was a kid going uh-huh. to the store, salt was like the cheapest thing on all shelves. You can get a box—I'll tell you how old I am—you can get a little box of salt for 10 cents. And I thought, it can't be. Every, you know, 10 cents? What? And, and it's still cheap, even though it's more yeah. than that today. It's Romans still...
3: would be furious to hear this. <laughs> I am like, that seems reasonable.
2: <laughs> and, you know, in the past, yeah, it was rare and— and yeah. valuable commodity, a strategic commodity,
3: yeah. even. You could use it as a weapon. <laughs> Maybe not. That might be the one thing. Is that one of the 14,000 uses?
2: No. Well, one of them was that you can pour on the wounds of—who's uh, the guy in the movie?
3: Um of uh, someone who I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know that Chuck you, Norris. Chuck, Chuck <laughs> Norris. If you put it on Chuck Norris? Was it put on to help him or to hurt him? Because doesn't it sort of clean? Does it have like a cleaning power?
2: Yeah. Well, it's 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 a disinfect. Not a. It's an antibiotic. I mean, yeah. it, it prevents the growth of, of microbes Bi- on right. it. But we'll learn all about
3: that. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to ruin the whole thing.
2: Just so that we're on the same page, the salt that we normally think of and chat about is uh, table salt, is sodium chloride. Mm-hmm. Uh, sodium is an element on the periodic table. If you remember that yeah. mysterious chart of boxes in your chemistry yes. class, chlorine is also there. You put them together, you get sodium chloride. By the way, sodium mm-hmm. is highly explosive and yeah. in, in, in reactive in the presence of water. And chlorine, each of these will kill you separately. really. And together, it's some of the most... It's delicious. The, it's
3: the, it's delicious. If you put sodium in water, it would...
2: It essentially you you want to get out of the room when
3: you did that because uh, it, creates, it it like reacts that. violently with the water. I right. hope that no one listening is off doing that.
2: Yeah, it's hard to get a slab of sto- sodium Is from it hard the to grocery. get sodium? Do you have to
3: break in somewhere. <laughs> Does McDonald's have it?
2: I don't. I've never looked. I I, I don't know. And chlorine is stuff that keeps the, your your you know swimming pools clean and and it's it's quite the disinfectant you put it together it's table salt and huh. it's it's a testament to the extraordinary diversity of what the elements on the periodic table do for us when brought together as as molecules yeah. i mean molecular chemistry is a whole different thing from atomic chemistry it's a whole other world and i doubt
3: it <laughs> No, you're probably right. <laughs> no, it's
2: the same world, but different, different, different Aspects rules. Of it. Uh, different rules. And I happen to know, as an astrophysicist, you make every one of these elements in stars. Mm-hmm. They're forged in the centers of high mass stars that later explode, spreading their enriched guts across the galaxy. Out of which you then make planets and people and salt just in case you were wondering.
3: I was going to say, is the, is this table salt from an exploding star? And yes, it is. <laughs> it's good to know. The
2: ingredients of table salt come from exploding stars. I'm
3: glad recipes don't say one quarter spoon exploding <laughs> star.
2: <laughs> so what we got here, you know, uh, salt, what's funny about salt is that it's, uh, you know, you go to farms. I don't know if you've been on a farm, if you're a city person, but like there's, <laughs> yeah, there's salt licks. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I said, ew, who would want to do that? You know? Yeah. And so these, these huge herbivores that we sustain on farms, they they, they, they need salt. They've got to lick salt as uh-huh. part of their daily diet. And, you know, I said, you know, this, this topic's too big for just me. And what I decided to do was bring in an expert I invited to my office, Mark Kurlansky. He's he's the author of the book called Salt, A World History.
3: Not to be confused with that movie. (laughs) With Angelina Jolie, (laughs) where she is not salty.
2: Well, let's check out that clip, uh, my first clip of my interview with him, just to find out what, what role salt has played in human history. Sure. It's hard for anyone today to imagine that salt was so highly valued as it once was. What happened? We throw away salt today. Salt is 25 cents in the store.
4: Well, to begin with, salt didn't have a great deal of value because most civilizations started off being hunter-gatherers and not agricultural. And hunter-gatherers don't really need salt. So the, the basis of the importance of salt is that we all need sodium and chloride for our bodies to function. But if you're on a mostly red meat diet, you will get all of the salt you need without having any additional salt. But then what happened is that civilizations moved to agriculture Now there's a whole bunch of problems. Salt is needed for caring for the the properties in the soil. It's needed to raise livestock because other mammals just like us need sodium and chloride. And before the age of uh, refrigeration and freezing, you really couldn't have a food trade without salt. You know, if you were a dairy farmer and you produce milk and butter and things like that, you could sell them to the immediate area, not too good even there in the summertime. But if you made cheese, which is preserved with salt, you could throw it on the wagon and ship it all over the world. The same was true of meat and fish and vegetables. And basically the entire food trade depended on salt. And in pre-industrial society, that was a very large part of trade. So it's not an exaggeration to say that without salt, you couldn't have an international economy. What you're saying is back then, any
2: food you ate from afar was salty.
4: Yeah, any foreign food or anything that was shipped any kind of distance was salty. And people used to eat a lot more salted food than they do now. And it was much saltier. Bacon, for example, the bacon we eat now is sort of salted in a token sort of way because it's kept in the refrigerator. But if you're going to salt bacon so that it can survive without being chilled, it has to be much saltier than that. So salt was a preservative. Salt was the leading way to preserve food. There were some other things, such as smoking. Smoking doesn't work that well unless you use a little salt also. And there was burying in the ground, which also needs a little salt. So most anything you try to do to preserve food involves salt. Eugene, do you bury your food in the ground?
3: I do, I do, with salt. That guy sounds like a saltist. Like, I believe him that it's important, but it's like, it's a little suspicious.
2: And there are other salts. It's not just sodium chloride. There's like saltpeter. It's a major ingredient in gunpowder and other explosives. Mm-hmm. Baking soda. Good.
3: I was hoping that salt could be a weapon.
2: Sodium bicarbonate. I mean, it goes on and on and on. But we got to end this first segment, and we're coming back. And when we come back, I have a special guest who can speak to the role of salt in ancient cultures. This is Star Trek Radio. Welcome back to Star Talk. I'm your host, Mr. Grass Tyson, and welcome again to Eugene Merman. Yeah, Eugene, you, you tweet. Is it at Eugene or?
3: Yeah, it's at EugeneMerman.com. <laughs> oh, Eugene Merman. I might have been beaten by just to, to be just at Eugene. Oh, oh, yes. That's too bad. Sorry Oddly about by that. by Sting. <laughs>
2: okay. So just our topic today is salt. Who would have thought? That salt could be so important in the history of the world, and I could not do this alone. And not that I don't love you, Eugene, but yeah. but I had to bring in some more ammo here. And so, really,
3: because I am a salt expert,
2: <laughs> we combed the halls of the American Museum of Natural History, where we have an entire department of anthropology. And guess who I found there? I found Peter Whiteley. Peter, welcome to Star Talk Radio.
5: Thanks very much. Great to be
2: here. You're an anthropologist with uh, specializing in.
5: North American natives. Native North Americans, yes. Yeah, speci- oh. Especially the Hopi and Zuni and other Pueblos in the Southwest. Because I brought you on,
2: because salt is not just something you put in your diets. Salt was uh, is a strategic commodity for people who can't just go to the grocery store and pick it up.
5: Absolutely. Well, in the Southwestern Pueblos, it was very much of a commodity that people traded back and forth, and that goes back three or 4,000 years. So in the particular places where they find it, like a Zuni salt lake, or the Manzano Salines uh, east of the Sandia Mountains, they found examples of the, that salt three or 400 miles away in the archaeological record. Hundreds hundred miles. So they, they would go get it. Absolutely. And uh, for example, Hopis uh, still uh, have a salt pilgrimage that they go on to the bottom. Still
3: as in still 2000 to this, to this day. Yes, to Which this day. Which one of us will tell them about Costco? <laughs> <laughs>
5: and very recently, they used to go to uh, the bottom of the Grand Canyon and they still go to uh, Zuni Salt Lake to get salt.
2: Oh, so that's right. Because those of you who are up on your geology know, you might ask, well, where does salt come from? Where's a good place? Well, one way is salt water, right? You get a salt water, yeah. either a huge lake that had become salty over the years or ocean. And all you need is to corral off a piece of it and let the sun sort corral of- Corral
3: a piece of the ocean. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, I see what you're saying. You, yeah. you you let
2: you let a tide bring in some water, and it comes out, but you trap some of the water as it comes in. Yeah. and some lakes are large enough that they became salty over the
3: years. The um, um, salt lake for one, yeah. just to pick it easy, just a pick just one. a low
2: hanging fruit there. Yeah, yeah. And so, the Baltic Sea, a big lake. <laughs> so there are ways to actually make it. And in my interview with Mark Kolansky, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that we're slotting into this show, uh, he tells us uh, some stories about how you. Fine salt and how you make it and where you get it from. So let's check it out.
4: The cheapest, most efficient way to make salt, if you live in a sunny climate, is to just take seawater and dam it off into pounds and let it sit there in the sun, and eventually all the water will evaporate. It may take a year, but you have a lot of different holding tanks which you rotate, so there's always one that's at crystallization. And this is a very efficient very old way of making salt that hasn't changed in thousands of years and requires very little investment and attracts beautiful birds. Does that mean all salt is sea salt? No, although the majority of table salt is sea salt, which is something Americans don't understand because in America it's not. Americans eat mostly rock salt. There's only a few places left that produce sea salt in the U.S. That wasn't always true, but for one reason or another, most of the sea salt places have gone out of business. And I don't know the difference between rock salt and sea salt. How, well, do, you, how do you just make rock salt? Don't you need a seawater to make rock salt? No, you need a place underground that has salt and a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> so you mined the salt? Yes, yes. Or Well, there's two ways of doing it. The salt deposits that are under the earth, you can either go down there and mine it like you would any other mineral, or you can flood it and pump the water out, which will come out as brine, and then evaporate the brine like you would sea salt.
2: Okay, so what you're saying geologically is that the mineable salt was once a salty water deposit where the water had evaporated and left the salt behind.
4: Yeah, most likely these are all places that were ocean at one time. And there's huge deposits in North America and in Europe and in Asia. There's salt under most of the Great Lakes area going you know, all the way from the plains to uh,
2: upstate New York. Remind me, are the Great Lakes salty or not? At what point are you big enough to become salty?
4: Well, bigger than the Great Lakes. (laughs) I think at the point at which you're an ocean. You know, this is something that hasn't ever been completely worked out about why seas are salty. It's a little bit mysterious. But the Great Lakes, although there are salt beds under the earth all around the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes are freshwater.
2: So, Peter Whiteley, I got you in this show from the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, your, your Hopi Indians would uh, – so they wouldn't create salt by drying up salt water. You're telling me they actually found salt in the mountains.
5: Well, uh, yeah, the bottom of the Grand Canyon and then at the salt lake that's uh, not too far away from Zuni Pueblo, about 50 miles so away. So the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Uh, no, not that one. That's that's even further away. Sa- salt, so th-
3: lake two? The, this, <laughs> salt Lake 2? This,
5: this, this is a junior version of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Did
3: it, was it also called Salt Lake?
5: It's called Zuni Salt Lake.
3: Okay. Yeah. Well, as long as they add in it. I have cover. an
5: embarrassing
2: urban story to tell you. I was flying uh-huh. to California, and <laughs> we were flying over Utah, but I wasn't thinking that at the time. I was just looking out the window. And so this huge white area, and I said to myself, wow, that looks like a salt residue, like from a lake that might have been there. That looks like a – of course, we're flying over Salt Lake City. I mean, I deduce from first principles of science that that was the Salt great Lake. Salt Lake. But it was obviously that. I mean, once I thought about it, but, but I, there I was pumping my, my geological <laughs> knowledge into,
3: into – Is that how you fly over the Grand Canyon? You're like, this is a very, very big canyon. It feels almost grand in its canyon
2: So So other great uh, deposits. So we have – Obviously, the Great Salt Lake in Utah, and you have your, your Salt Lake 2 version, yes. Right. And, uh, of course, the Dead Sea in Israel.
3: What, yeah, I, what, where you, you can sit up in. Uh, I... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can sit in it. Like you can, It's so salty, you can sit in
2: it. Have you tried walking on it, though? <laughs>
3: uh, I, I'm oddly weird. It's weird I can walk on it, but I do not want to spook people when I was there.
1: <laughs> so,
2: you don't want to fool people into thinking...
3: By magic,
2: you're someone other than. Yeah, yeah, yeah. James.
3: I can walk on it, but I, but it's purely scientific.
2: You chose not to. So what gets me is that, of course, it's called the Dead Sea because there were no fishes in it. But that's more a measure of the fact that they didn't have a microscope because there are microbes everywhere wherever you have liquid water in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a scientific limitation that it got called the Dead Sea, and also, of course, you uh, you, you know, there's a, near Detroit. Uh, Four hundred million years ago, there is an it, Michigan at the time was warm, and it was a, there was a shallow sea. And when the water dried up, it left one of the world's largest salt deposits. And so, mining continues to this day in those in mines in Detroit. <laughs> it's...
3: In near Detroit,
2: near Detroit, yes, yeah. And the shafts go down more than a thousand feet below the surface just to get the salt. I mean, this is extraordinary. The 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 extent that people go to to recover this stuff. So, so, so you're a your Hopi tribe. So, they, they would get the salt. They knew they needed the salt.
5: Yeah, exactly. And they, would, uh, they went off on long expeditions, uh, which were really r- ritual pilgrimages. Uh, some of them, especially to, uh, to those two places I've mentioned, they have to go through all sorts of ritual preparations. And it's associated with an initiation uh, and so on. So, they, it's a very arduous trek down to the bottom of the Grand
2: Canyon. Wait, but somebody had, to, somebody had to go that far to begin with and find it.
3: Right. And then they pass the information along. Are you saying it's basically like a salt bar mitzvah? <laughs> sort of.
2: and, and
5: if you like to think of it that way, yes. <laughs> I would like that. And I'm
3: going to, and I'm going to tell people that's what you said. And, and, and that's, your,
2: that's your next gift at the bar mitzvah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not the, not the $18. But, but
3: <laughs> no. Uh, packets of salt. Exactly. But
5: the information that you're referring to was widely known and shared among prehistoric peoples in the greater Southwest, so they all knew where those places were. And they, you know, sacralized it, too. Their, their salt Deities associated with those places, goddesses and gods, and so. to sacralize is to make it a
2: deity. I like make. that word.
3: That's my first time I've heard that word. It's the first time I've heard it. Sacralize. But it's not going to be Maybe the way I <laughs> just invented it. I'm going to hear it later when I tell people about it. Well, he just said
2: he might have just invented it. I don't oh. know. <laughs> that's fine. So, I mean, I, my list here is long about all these cultures going back thousands of years. You know, the Chinese in 6,000 BC would harvest dry beds along the salty. Uh, how do you pronounce this lake? Yuchin. Yunchin.
3: I like that you're asking me. Uh, no. <laughs> (laughs) Neil, close, though. (laughs) That sounds fine. Sounds fine to me.
2: And the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Romans, the Celts were mining rock salt in the Austrian Alps as far back as 700 BC. I mean, this this goes on and on. Peter. Yeah, it's global. So what gets me is how people know that they need the salt. Why did they know they need the salt? But the people who were getting scurvy for not having vitamin C didn't know they needed vitamin C.
3: They eventually found out. (laughs) <laughs> I mean it's trial and error. Everyone's dying and then it's like, oh we should get some salt.
2: Actually, we got to wind down this segment, but when we come back, let's f- learn more about where salt comes from and what its effect is on the history of cultures in the world. It's its geopolitical influence knows no bounds. I'm here with Eugene Merman, my favorite stand-up comedian, one of my favorites. Excuse no, me. too late. And Peter Whiteley, <laughs> <Too> anthropologist, <late. laughs> American Museum of Natural History.
0: We'll be right back.
1: PXG.com slash star code star
2: Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I am Neil Tyson, your host. You know, you can find Star Talk on the web at startalkradio.net. Not only that, you can download us as an iTunes podcast. And we are in the Twitterverse. What other handle? But of course, at Star Talk Radio. Co-host this week, Eugene Merman. Eugene, good to have you back in studio. And, you know, uh, we're orbiting the show on the subject of salt. Yes. An interview that I conducted with Mark Kurlansky, author of Salt, A World History. And we got into discussing – that's that's a book about everything about salt, stuff you never thought
3: existed or was true. About salt. About salt. The secrets of salt. The secrets of salt. The working title of that book, no one but me knows that.
2: (laughs) So uh, he and I discussed some surprising cultural beliefs Mm -hmm. involving salt. Let's check it out.
4: I have spent a lot of time working in Haiti, so I already knew that salt was used to cure zombies, which might be... To cure zombies or kill zombies? No, to cure zombies.
2: Yeah, because salt takes away evil. Uh, Okay, so in a ritualistic way, salt has... You can,
4: If somebody has been zombified, you can bring them back to normal
2: with salt. And how do you apply the salt? You sprinkle it on them with a salt shaker?
4: I'm not sure I have to say I haven't done it. But there is this association with salt preventing evil and curing evil because it stops rotting. So in Japanese theater, the stage is sprinkled with salt to chase away bad spirits. And there are lots of examples of salt used for that. Salt in many cultures is brought to a new home for good luck. What's with the salt over the shoulder? The problem with spilling salt is a Middle Eastern thing that comes up a lot in Judaism and in Islam. And that is related to the ability of salt to preserve things. So it seals a bargain. So, for instance, in Judaism, salt is a symbol of sealing what's called the covenant, the agreement between God and Jews. So if you spill salt, it's like the covenant has been broken. And so you have to do something about that. So you get rid of it. Chuck it over your shoulder. If you look closely in the painting of The Last Supper, you will see that there is a spilled salt cellar on the table by Judas. I never knew that. That table's got all sorts of interesting details in it.
2: (laughs) Eugene, did you know there was salt on the
4: table
3: of of The Last Supper? I didn't know that you could cure zombies. With salt. And that, I wonder how it's ever been tried practically.
2: Well, plots I mean, but it's good to know because of all the apocalypses. The asteroid, you know, we can deflect an asteroid. Virus, yeah. we can find a cure. But the zombie apocalypse, that was going to be an unbeatable one. Salt. But, but salt is it. Totally. I, I was, <laughs> when he was going to say,
3: oh, i for salt. I was really hoping that somebody would think that salt could get you pregnant. <laughs> <Right>. But <laughs> you, you can't have everything.
2: We have in studio one of our spe- special guests, uh, Peter Whiteley. He's a curator of... Uh, ethnology I think is the official title there at the American Museum of Natural History he's a a cross department colleague of mine actually and thanks for coming in he's an expert on the culture of the, the Hopi tribes and other sort of southwest Native American cultures and you and you and Apparently, salt was a big deal to them.
5: Absolutely, yes. Since they have to go so far to get it, uh, it it achieved a great deal of importance in their culture. So more than just the nutritional value of the stuff. Exactly. So it became symbolically valued, and uh, there are... Uh, deities th- who are named after salt. There are, there are salt goddesses and salt gods and such. So there's the Epsom salt deity, I guess. <laughs> and
2: <you've got> <laughs> I don't think I
3: heard about that one. But. How far would
5: they walk? Did you say 50 miles or more? 50 miles and more. The to, to distance the Grand Canyon from the Hopi Mesas is about 100 miles. So why not just move there? I mean, the the Native Americans were known to be nomadic in many ways. Well, that's right. There there are some.
2: There are some. I would move to where the salt (laughs) was. Excuse me. That's what I would do. (laughs) That's that's a good plan.
5: There are there are of course Native peoples who live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, like the Havasupai. And in the past... You say that like that was just so obvious that what an
3: idiot.
2: Some people we do. Know.
3: But there's not room for everybody, so some people like to walk. Plus, it's like, if you move there, then you get rid of the sp- spiritual meaningfulness. That's why we don't live at Disney World. We walk to it. <laughs> okay. Or it would have no meaning to it.
2: I guess. The, the pilgrimage it gives it meaning.
5: Exactly. There you go. Indeed. Well, yeah. this,
2: this goes way back. I mean, it was a commodity for a while. Was it also a commodity among the, the Native American tribes?
5: Absolutely. So, uh, even today you'll find Zunis who bring Zuni salt to Hopi and they will exchange it for the same measure of ground blue cornmeal. That goes back a long, long way.
3: Again... And that's a s- symbolic thing that they're doing.
5: Well, uh, it's it's a nu- nutritional thing, too, but it, it represents the contributions that each have to each other's culture. Again, right. yeah, of course. they haven't found Costco.
2: You were right. right. <laughs> well, no, what I'm asking
3: is this is more of like a, uh, a spiritual... like a, a recognition of each other's value more than it is like we need blue cornmeal. <laughs> well, this that, is the only way we can get. <laughs> it. Uh,
5: well, that, that's right. And there's a special celebration of this particular kind of salt that Hopis call it by a particular term, ba which means literally water salt. And mm-hmm. that's that's something that they value more highly than what you get from Costco. You know, it's yes.
2: weird. You look back at Costco. <laughs> you look back. A Chinese emperors had a salt monopoly. And 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 the Venetian government controlled the price and export of salt through its ports through the through the lagoon, and uh, the Erie Canal was called the ditch that salt built because it was financed by a tax on salt. I mean, it's amazing. Just you go down this list, and 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 do you know Romans salted their vegetables, and hence the word salad. Oh. Salad for salt, and 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 the salary comes from the this, word
3: salt. You now have reached where it sounds like it's like an Illuminati conspiracy <laughs> about salt. Where like, did you know everywhere in history, salt was there making it was decisions, there voting for the president. Salt.
2: When we come back, more of my interview with Mark Kurlansky, the author of Salt, and my in-studio guest Peter Whiteman. We'll be right back. Back to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm here with my co-host Eugene Merman and a special in-studio guest, Peter Whiteley. He's a, a, a curator of ethnology at the American Museum of Natural History. And today's topic is salt. Salt as a, as a cultural, geopolitical force. Yeah. And I have slotted in here an interview that I had in my office with Mark Kurlansky, and he wrote the book Salt: A World History. And he told me how salt contributed to the science of geology, which I hadn't thought about. But in retrospect, clearly, that would be the case. If you care where your salt is, you're going to learn about what Earth did to get it there and what you're going to have to do to get it from the Earth. And also what role salt what, – what, what role geology played in devaluing salt itself. So let's, let's check another clip out from that interview with Mark Kurlansky.
4: The whole science of geology grew up on salt. Geology was basically the science of finding salt. Just a sec, how does the need
2: for geologists to help you find salt compare with the need for geologists to help people find iron or any other valuable ore?
4: Well, it's very much the same thing. It was a very valuable ore. And that's why this science grew up looking for it. Until the beginning of the 20th century, and then a discovery was made that there was a relationship between salt and oil. The reason for this relationship is that very solid deposits of salt, which are called salt domes, are impenetrable. So organic material that pushes up against salt won't go any further, and it'll be trapped there, and that's how oil is made. When this was discovered, originally in Pennsylvania and then in Texas, the science of geology became about looking for salt so that you could find oil and went back to all of these places in the Middle East where salt domes had been discovered and found oil. And today, geology is very much focused on finding oil. But that only values the oil. It doesn't
2: devalue the salt.
4: Well, it did devalue the salt because it stepped up the search for salt and it was discovered that there was just much, much more salt in the earth than anybody had ever imagined. Just these huge, huge deposits. I mean, from Ireland across northern England into Scandinavia, from eastern France across Germany and Austria into Poland, you know, from Detroit to Syracuse, Uh, just huge. So that, for one thing, lessen the value of salt. But at the same time, refrigeration and freezing were being developed, which is actually my next book. I'm working on a book, a biography of Clarence Birdseye. Clarence Birdseye ruined the salt industry by developing commercial freezing. So, Peter,
2: (laughs) do these Native American tribes, do they, uh, part of the salt was nutritional, but also to... Was it? It was also to preserve food over the winter months. And but there are other ways to preserve today. And and you you study the relatively recent history of these tribes. Why are they still doing it the old-fashioned way? Just put them in a condo and give them a refrigerator.
5: Uh, <laughs> well, they they like the way it tastes. They like that that particular kind of salt that I was talking about. But of course they have many other methods of preserving meat and fish and so forth in, in the past as well as in the present. So you get get deer meat and smoke it or dry it or or clams and uh, salmon and halibut on the on the northwest coast they spent um, many hours drying these in smokehouses and so forth speci- especially for that purpose
2: i, I have uh, in-laws from the pacific northwest and yeah you know, there's a whole culture of the dried the dried meat and it tastes great and it's very Absolutely. And it's very high calorie actually and so you don't need much of it to to keep you going through the day yeah it's
5: great stuff
2: so the the, the so what i find interesting is just how Salt had all these secondary effects on the rest of the conduct of cultures. I mean, that's extraordinary. And and is it, what I what I wonder though is. Uh, De- has salt been devalued in the in the Native American community because of its the full access? Are those deities still operating in the cultures? <laughs> the deities you spoke of in an because earlier of segment. Because
3: all the salt domes in Europe. Yeah. He <laughs> was like they're all over France and Ireland.
2: Yeah, that was like like, like the like the, the the military map of, of
3: Napoleon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Had all the salt. And then also in Detroit. <laughs> I'm glad they have something, even if it's salt.
5: Napoleon's last stand in Detroit. <laughs> I think uh, tra- traditionally oriented people still pay attention to those things and again they do value the the native salt more than the commercial salt very much so into the into the present
3: is it is it actually a better quality I think it so. tastes
5: better, and Hopis talk about it as uh, Pasquangwa, much more flavorful, much uh, much sweeter um, mm-hmm. than the commercial salt.
3: But it sounds
2: like you speak Hopi. We'll have to get back to that after this segment. <laughs> a it's it's a little bit. I'll, we'll, 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 and you speak Klingon, don't you? I speak Russian. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back when we come back on Star Talk Radio. More on the topic of salt. Be right back.
1: or the personality. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can use it at home on the computer or on the go through the app on your phone or your tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything itself. And no more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Talk. Visit IXL.com slash Talk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. It's that time of
0: the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze,
2: Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm here in studio with Eugene Merman and a special guest, an Fno curator of ethnography did i get that right <laughs> yes yes uh, peter whiteley at the american museum of natural history specializing in southwest the uh, native americans of the southwest the relatively recent history uh, that they've enjoyed and this topic is salt and what role it's played in cultures and how they've treated each other and how they've how they've developed and uh, we also have clips from an interview we have the last of several clips of my interview with Mark Kurlansky, the author of SALT, A World History. Why don't we start off with that clip where he talks about Salt not simply as being important for your survival, but it was so important for survival that in fact it became Some a people st- married it. <laughs> became a strategic commodity. Let's check it out. Tell me, the history of war and salt, is that a book unto itself?
4: In many ways, actually, because uh, salt was also used to cauterize wounds, so an army that didn't have salt was in trouble. But you get examples like the Union Army in the Civil War. The Union Army had a strategy of preventing the South from getting salt. They couldn't get northern salt because there was an embargo, and wherever they found a salt work, they destroyed them. Sometimes they went back repeatedly and destroyed them. So that the South was in desperate shortage of salt during the entire Civil War, which uh, created a food shortage in wintertime. Wow. So the control of salt became a major military tactic. Yes. And salt has often been regarded as strategic. In British government policy, it tells you something about the British government. They were always more concerned with salt as a strategic commodity than they were with it as a commercial commodity. Queen Elizabeth I warned the English people of their dangerous dependency, exact quote, dangerous dependency on French sea salt.
2: So salt of yesterday is oil of today.
4: That's right. You know, when you look at salt and oil, there's a great lesson there. It's actually one of the secret reasons why I wrote the book. What you think is valuable and what you're willing to fight and die for, is it really valuable? Value is an illusion and it shifts all of the time. And I am absolutely certain that someday oil
3: will be worth about what salt is worth today. Some wishful thinking there. It's certainly possible, but it doesn't mean at the time you shouldn't go to tons of wars over oil and salt. I liked,
2: I'd i forgotten that, yes, you can use salt to cauterize wounds. And, yeah. of course, Rambo did that. In... I
3: still do it. <laughs> if I get into a knife fight, I go right to some salt.
2: No, was it Rambo? No, no, no. He actually took the gunpowder out of a bullet. And oh, ignited it. it in the wound in his side to cauterize yeah. the wound. So that was that was the manly thing that he did. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I would just
3: put salt <laughs> on it. I'm not a lunatic.
2: <laughs> so this goes way back for the, for the military. The Roman army was sometimes paid in salt. And the origin origin of the world of the word salary, mm-hmm. salary, salary, salad, <laughs> and salads. All of it. All of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 of course, Sally was a very salty lady. <laughs> and of course, the expression is he worth his worth his weight in salt. You know right. And what's odd, because when I first learned of salt, I heard that it, like, gave you high blood pressure and killed you. So, when someone said he's the salt of the earth, it's like, ooh, you must not like the person. <laughs> I, mean, I came way out of out of sync with when, when all of this uh, was um, – all this vocabulary was established. And, of course, one of the, one of the major causes – there's several, of course. But one of the major causes of the French Revolution was the salt tax. We never talk about that because we can't no. even picture it. We can't even think about it. At I think time, we
3: can picture it. Did you know the, the French prisons were full of people convicted of salt smuggling? Salt smuggling? S- oh, was trying to avoid being salt taxes. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, That's I mean, we do that today. There was right. also uh, tea was also very important. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, I guess I think it's perfectly reasonable salt was so important. One of the
2: first things they did at the end of the revolution was suspend the salt tax, and of course, famously portrayed in the film Gandhi. But what Gandhi actually did was one of his steps to fight for India's independence. From mm-hmm. Great Britain was it uh, was concerned about his policies concerning salt, and then uh, the, the he what was that that march to the sea mm-hmm. where he made salt without the oversight of the British, and that was viewed as almost a, a, a as a strong act of defiance. And here we look at it, and say, "What's he doing? He's making salt. What do you care, the British?" <laughs> it's
3: like well, let chill him, out, let him have some salt. <laughs> Whoever consult, controls the salt controls the world. <laughs> That's right. A movie I'm going to be working on.
2: So, Peter, we're running. The, short on time. Any, any concluding comments you have about this whole business?
5: Well, I think that, uh, that uh, concept of salt being a strategic resource is, is very widely present. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of some societies in Papua New Guinea where there are specialized salt producers and salt makers. They have a you – know, they'll be – they'll have a high role in, in the local hierarchy and they get to be responsible for trading salt uh, in a very controlled fashion among different uh, groups of neighboring tribes.
2: So it's, it's still going on. It's uh, still there absolutely so, yep. still there yeah, so. and 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 like I say would be interesting if oil one day became the salt of the past
3: yes and i can't wait for a new thing to replace it that we go to war over <laughs> i just hope i get to control it
2: <laughs> well we got to wrap up this first hour of star talk there's a lot more to discover in part 2 of our show about the science of salt and in that second hour that's when we get into the health considerations of salt and what it means to us physiologically. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio. Eugene, thanks for being in this first hour. And Peter Whiteley, thanks for joining us uh, in, in this first hour of Star Talk Radio. Star Talk is brought to you in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. As always, I'm compelled to tell you that until next time, keep looking up. Neil deGrasse Tyson, signing off.